All right, well, listen, let's turn to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. I was thinking today that you could actually, you could, you could finish Daniel chapter 8 in 15 minutes or 15 days. I've chosen to do neither. We'll do it in three, in three days. We'll do it last week, this week, and next week, and we'll get it all out of the way. You can do it in 15 minutes and get the gist of what's going on. You can do it in 15 days and really nitpick a lot of stuff. Or you can just take your time and, and realize that some of the things that we're seeing happen in Daniel chapter 8 with the visions that he's received from the Lord are actually things that are happening today. And it gives you time to realize that all the players in the scriptures, you know, when I, when I say players, I mean all the people that are, that are uh, the groups or, or nations and all that are having some kind of effect in the end time, they're, they're already here and, and we already identify them. For example, when we started speaking about Persia, we know that that's Iran of today. And there's no doubting that. There's no questioning that. So we know that. Babylon itself has a lot of different tentacles in its, in its reach prophetically. But there's still an area of the world that, uh, that fits this issue of, of Babylon as we saw when we studied the book of Revelation. And what's interesting about chapter 8 is that one nation really sticks out, and that is the nation of Greece. Not the Greece of today, interestingly enough. Though it, it had its roots in, in this particular uh, nation that we see described for us in this chapter. But it is certainly a far cry from the Greece of the time that Daniel described. And he described it actually a couple of hundred years or about 150 years before uh, Alexander the Great came on the scene. We talked about him last week. We, we saw the first eight verses, kind of generally speaking, what this was all about. So we want to pick up and go down through about verse 12 tonight. Because there's some interesting things about a person that is mentioned as one of the horns. Not the horn that represents Daniel, I'm sorry, uh, Alexander, or the one that Alexander represents, I should say. But another person. And, and, and it, it's a significant person in prophecy. It is a significant person in the time of Jesus as he gives forth the prophecy of the end times. And it is a, a person that will, in fact reveal, to some extent, the Antichrist. In other words, he is a forerunner to the Antichrist. But we will see him again later on in the, uh, in the book of Daniel. So let's go back, if you will, just for uh, the sake of, of context. And I was actually going to start on verse 5, uh, but... You know, the text we're going to look at, because we already went through verses 1 through 8, is verses 9 through 12. But I want to go back and read, and I was going to give you verse 5 to start with, but let's go to, let's go to verse 4. Verse 4. Because in verse 4, we still see the ram, which is represented by Persia, or by Medo-Persia, mentioned here. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward. 
Now, you see the directions of these nations. When, when those uh, directions are mentioned, they're mentioned because these are directions that they went out to conquer. So this nation of Medo-Persia pushed westward and northward and southward so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. Now that could refer uh, somewhat specifically, if you will, to Cyrus the Great, who was the Mede, uh, who was the Mede or uh, I should say the Persian, because uh, Darius was the Mede. So Cyrus was the one. If 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 you done if you done any reading or history of the Greco-Persian Wars, you'll realize that uh, uh, they go back a long way. When when Greece was really made up of little city states, uh, for example, Athens was a city state. Uh, Sparta was a city state, and and there are a few others. And then they, they actually grew and became a nation. Uh, under Alexander's father, Philip, they, they began to establish a, a greater sense of being a nation. Eventually, they grew big enough to go out and conquer, as Alexander did. Uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. So anyway, we start there with, with Medo-Persia. Now, in verse 5, it says, And as I was considering, behold, a he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth. The he-goat, of course, being Greece or Macedonia. Uh, from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. We mentioned how quickly, how rapid this, this uh, uh, army went through uh, from the west eastward and eventually eastward, northward and southward. And that army was led by Alexander the Great who is, by the way, the notable horn between his eyes. That's the symbolism here. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. In other words, he reserved the greatest strength of his own army for this Medo-Persian attack. Because we saw in uh, verse 7, I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler, as I said last week, with that, with that bitter rage against him, which is the ram, which was Medo-Persia, and smote the ram and break his two horns, which was Medo, Media, or Media, or Media and Persia, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. And you need to understand something about this kind of attack. We didn't talk about it last week. But what's, what's important to understand was that Alexander, Alexander was concentrating his wrath against Persia for the very Persian invasions that had happened many years previous toward Greece. Some of you have probably heard about that uh, well, well, you know, it wasn't a, a, a total overcoming, but there were, there were some mighty wars between these two nations. Some of you may have heard about that war that took place in Thermopylae, where, where um, uh, Leonidas led uh, 300 men against tens of thousands of Persians. There was even a movie that came out, uh, 300. I don't recommend it because of its violence as well as a lot of other things that 
took place in it. And I wonder a little bit about the history itself. But, but nonetheless, I mean, it was historical in the sense that it talked about this particular war between the Persians and the Greeks. Uh, in that particular case, it was Sparta. Uh, Leonidas was the one who led uh, the Spartans against, against uh, the, the Persians. But it was all of the destruction that the Persians had brought upon Greece that incensed Alexander to come against him. This is why this verse is, is the way it is, verse 7. And then it goes on to say, Therefore he, the he-goat, waxed very great. The, in other words, Greece, led by Alexander, grew greater and greater as they went on conquering. The great horn, and it says that when he was strong, which means he was strong because of his youth, uh, because of his vigor, because of his, uh, his determination, because of his way of doing things. When he got strong at the age of 32, the great horn was broken. He died. Alexander died. And for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And I'll talk about that in a moment. Once again, we, talked, we touched on it last week. Uh, we'll expand starting there. And out of one of them came forth a little horn... That is, out of the four horns that came out of uh, the goat that uh, after the other horn was broken, which was Alexander, uh, four, uh, there was a little horn that came out of one of them, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. Now, some of you might have in your scriptures the glorious land or the pleasant land. Well, we know where that is. That is specifically Jerusalem. And generally, it's, it's the land of Israel. Uh, and it waxed great, even to the host of heaven. That is the, the one little horn. Uh, going back, that little horn that described in verse 9. It waxed great. In other words, it grew great, even to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. This is, this is very figurative language and symbolic language. Uh, we'll talk about it in a moment. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Now we're looking at this horn going into the pleasant land, being, of course, Jerusalem. And the host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. All right. So that's the text that we're going to deal with tonight. So we will backtrack a little bit from our previous study dealing with Daniel's second vision by the river Ulai, if only to fill in some gaps with needed information to understand fully the focus of this chapter and, of course, where we're going from here. The two visions of Daniel in chapters 7 and 8, there were two visions. One vision in chapter 7 began the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. The second three, uh, two years later, in the third year of Belshazzar, he received the vision in chapter 8. So, the vision of Daniel 7 has a, a very wide scope in that it re- includes the entire known world as the stage setting. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome... This is one of the reasons why the vision was written in Aramaic, because it was about Gentiles. The scene in Daniel 8, conversely, begins with a fairly wide field of vision. In other words, the conflict now focuses on two world powers, Greece and Persia. 
but it narrows very quickly until the focus is on the persecution that will rage in that tiny land known as Judah, the pleasant land. So here's the reason for the change of the language back to Hebrew. Because now God is going to encourage His people through their language what is going to happen because even though they're going to go through this time of trial and persecution, and some of it is actually going through chastisement by God because they had turned their backs on God again in certain ways, and God was using this to bring them back to Him, which is always an encouragement if you, if you look at it that way. But nonetheless, while Daniel 7 is concerned with the coming of the Antichrist, Daniel 8 is concerned with a petty tyrant who is the shadow of that evil one that is brought to focus in chapter 7. So we concluded our study last time with a mention of Alexander the Great, the notable horn of verse 5. So let's pick up there again and continue with some more details. Now I've given you some details in my initial reading of this, so I'm just going to read through this one, one more time to kind of set the foundation of what we're going to look at again. And as I was considering, behold, a he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth, Touch not the ground. The goat had a notable horn between his eyes. That's Alexander. He came to the ram that had two horns, which is, of course, Medo-Persia, which I had seen standing before the river and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him and, and smote the ram and broke his, uh, break his two horns. And, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground, stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore, uh, the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. Now, that's where we're going to uh, pick up here. So, the Grecian Macedonian Empire rose from the west, as we saw last time and today, And as our text indicates, it rose from the West. Now, just to mention that it rose from the West, does that change anything as far as, you know, who's who's now taking precedence here in the story? No, not yet. It came with great speed. Which way did it go, by the way? It had to go East. All right, remember that. It came with great speed, touching not the ground. Now, that means that it came in, in a very quick way, but it also means that there, was none, there were none on earth that could match it in its power and its intensity and its drive. They had a noble, notable ruler named Alexander, who is the notable horn that we've seen in the text. They had a famous war with the Medo-Persian Empire. The goat ran into the ram. They, so, you know, here, here again, payback time, as it were. Uh, they fought the Medo-Persians with great hatred. As we said, they were, uh, they were moved with choler, a, a bitter rage against the Persians. And they conquered the Persians. No power in the ram to stand before him, it says in our text. They conquered the Persians. The reign of Alexander was suddenly cut short because the great horn was broken. After Alexander's reign, the Greek Empire was divided among four rulers, ruling their dominions, not the entire empire together. They were ruling four different sections of the kingdom that was won by Alexander. And we are told there at the end of verse 8, And for it came up four notable ones 
toward the four winds of heaven. Now, the four generals that we want to talk about, this is all history. But it was all seen by Daniel before it happened. By the way, Greece did exist during the time of Daniel, but as I said, it was at that time very small groups of, of, of city-states. The first ruler was Cassander. Cassander. And he ruled Greece and its region. And I'll show you a map here in just a moment so you can see the extent of each of the rulers' uh, 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 kingdom that they ruled. Cassander ruled Greece and its region, so he is the furthest west. Cassander is the furthest west where Greece is today. Lysimachus ruled over Asia Minor. So you go a little further east and in what is the area of Asia Minor, uh, touching pretty much the area of Turkey as well, but other little uh, places uh, that seem like they're from Greece, but they're not. They just... uh, One thing about Greece, how many of you have ever heard of the Greek Orthodox Church? Okay, we've heard of many Orthodox churches. Really began in in, in that time uh, with the Greek Orthodox Church. Actually, the Antiochian Church, the Antiochian Orthodox, Antioch was in Syria. So that was actually the first church outside of the Jerusalem Church. As a matter of fact... Who came from there was, uh, well, Paul in Tarsus, but he was also in Antioch. If you read through, I think, I believe it's Acts chapter 13, it, it mentions the Antiochian church. There's still an Antiochian church today. As a matter of fact, one of them is here in El Paso. And, and most of the people that are there are Christians from Syria that attend. I know many of them. I went to high school with many of them because they lived on the west side. Uh, but, but I mention Orthodox churches because, you see, when the, when the Catholic church or the, the church at that time, uh, you know, hundreds of years, about 300 years later or so, three or 400 years later, uh, when the church was, was, was now split into two divisions, there was the Roman Catholic, which was the Western church, and anything else east of that was Orthodox, therefore it was Western. So we oftentimes think that, you know, that Greece is just a Western uh, nation or Western culture, it's actually more Eastern than it is Western. But just keep that in mind as we go through our study here. Lysimachus was ruler over Asia Minor. uh, And then there was Seleucus or Seleucus. He ruled in the area of Syria and the land of Israel. Now stop here for just a moment and let's let's look at some, some current events here. That terrible, evil, demonic group called ISIS, or the Islamic State, has had a few names given to it. The Islamic State of Iraq and Syria is ISIS. But our president and some of, most of his administration use the term ISIL, I-S-I-L, which means the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. The Levant. What is the Levant? I've talked about this before, but very quickly. The Levant is a, cre- is a, is a, a crescent area that starts in Turkey and swings around over places like Lebanon and, and, and then Syria and, and down 
over Israel. Israel is right in the middle of what is called the Levant because it, it just goes around the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. The reason I don't like that particular name is because it puts Israel right in the center of what they want to conquer. In fact, destroy the people and conquer the land. So, even in current thinking, this is kind of significant, as you'll see in just a moment. Seleucus, Syria, and the land of Israel. And then comes Ptolemy, Egypt and Libya, and the part of Cyrenica, which is a little part that's just right next to Libya, to the, to the west of northern Africa. Okay? But uh, Ptolemy went down into the south and Egypt and Libya. Now let's look at a couple of maps here. I got to use both hands here because I got I got to change to the map. Now this one's a real hard. This one actually comes out of a Bible, okay? And I forget which one it, which Bible it is, but but nonetheless they have they have the empire of Alexander the Great as you can see right here. Um, what's interesting about this map is that there's actually five rulers. So let me, let me clear this up. This area here, the green area, the large green area, that is the Seleucid, the Seleucid dynasty or the Seleucid kingdom. It's the, pretty much the largest one. Macedonia here, that's, uh, uh, that was Cassander. That, that's the furthest west, furthest west here. This little green spot there, was Lysicamus, or Lysimachus, I should say. And uh, then down here is Ptolemy, Egypt and Libya and Cyrenaica there in the south. And you say, well, what's this here? Well, that is the kingdom of someone named Antigonus Monothalmus. That was his Greek name. You know what? It, the, the Monothalmus was just too hard to pronounce, so they they called him Antigonus Cyclops, because Monothalmus means Antigonus, the one-eyed man. <laughs> it means he only had one good eye, obviously, and he was actually a, a commander in, uh, in the in the in the Greek army. This was his. He conquered that, uh, or was given that, or they decided that he was going to have it in, in the time of 323 B.C., but it didn't last very long, because uh, by 300 B.C., uh, he was gone, and uh, Lysimachus and Seleucus ate this all up. So that's why it ended up with just four, not five. So, I don't want to go into all of the details, and you probably don't want me to either, and so I won't. But that's, that's what that was, okay? So it ended up being more like this. You notice Cassander to the west, Lysimachus there next, and then of the largest being Seleucus, or Seleucus, and then south Ptolemy. They don't give Ptolemy enough of, 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 of Africa there. Uh, so I went ahead and got this map, because this one's better. As a matter of fact, this is not only the most accurate, but it's really the most clear if you're standing where I am. So if you want to come and look, you can. But anyway, again, the, the large yellow area is the Seleucid, or Seleucid dynasty. 
dynasty, and then right next to that, uh, that would be Lysimachus, and then next to that to the green in the far west is uh, Cassander's uh, uh, kingdom, and then down south in the purple there is, uh, again, uh, Ptolemy, uh, who was over Egypt. Why is all of this important? By the way, this is a German map. There's some German there on the end. There. Okay, well, why is this important? Because with the death of Alexander, the central power was broken and there followed a period of chaos. And while Cassandra's rule of Greece, Macedon and Thessaly, there, that, those were the three uh, regions that became the one Greek uh, kingdom there, and Lysimachus's rule over Asia Minor, which was partially uh, taken up uh, uh, Turkey of today, they actually passed off the pages of history. There's not a whole lot said about them in history. Because the prophetic focus now turns to Israel and her neighbors right here. If you'll notice, there's a little surrounding of, of, of a piece of land that belongs to the Seleucid dynasty, but around it is Ptolemy. That's another historic stuff that you don't want me to talk about today. So when we get to Daniel chapter 11, in Daniel chapter 11, we will find that Ptolemy and Seleucus would become both the king of the south and the king of the north, respectively. Ptolemy, the kingdom, the king of the south, and Seleucus, the king of the north. But we'll do that when we get to chapter 11. Now, one thing that can be said of Alexander's influence upon the known world is that because of his passion to spread his Greek culture, the passion that Alexander had to spread the Greek culture to all the known world, the Lord used this. He would use this to prepare the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for we know that the common Greek language, which was called koine, K-O-I-N-E, koine, would become the language of the New Testament. Isn't that interesting? And it's significant. It was the language that became the language of the known world, the common language. So there were two common languages. What were they? Koine and Aramaic. The Hebrew, at that point, by Jesus' time, the Hebrew was, was very much the religious language of the Jews. But everybody spoke Aramaic, and everybody spoke Koine Greek, the common language. Now, what has God done? He has set up the very basis for bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the world. Not just to some part of it but to all the world. That is why it is significant that the Scriptures are written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And where is the Aramaic? Mostly in, in the book of Daniel. So this is the significance of the book of Daniel when it comes to the announcement of the Messiah, as we will see in chapter 9. So, Stay tuned. So now as we move into verse 9 of our text, let's not be confused about this little horn 
that is going to rise up. Again, verse 9. This little horn is not the same as the little horn of chapter 7. Because in chapter 7, that horn represented the lawless one, the man of sin, the Antichrist. A lot different than the big horn and the goat, because the big horn and the goat was Alexander. This is another little horn. Here in chapter 8, the little horn arises from the Greek Empire. Notice, from the Greek Empire, not the Roman Empire, from which Antichrist will come. And when we talked about the Roman Empire last time in chapter 7, or a couple weeks ago in chapter 7, we also mentioned the very fact that the majority of the strength of the Roman Empire was not Western, it was Eastern. Keep that in mind. As we shall see, this little horn arises from one of the divisions of the Grecian Empire. Which one do you think is going to be? It's going to be the biggest one. Where is it? The furthest east. The Seleucid dynasty. And it represents the historic figure of a person named Antiochus. Antiochus or Antiochus as we pronounce in American English. Antiochus the fourth. He changed his name or actually added to his name Antiochus Epiphanes. Or as you pronounce it more clearly Antiochus Epiphanes which means Antiochus the illustrative, the manifest, the revelation. He thought he was God. That's why he used those names. Which is interesting, because here as he's claiming to be a revelation of the gods, many people gave him a different name. Antiochus Epimanes. Sounds like Epiphanes, right? This is Epimanes. you know what that means? Antiochus the madman. They realized what his character was. So when you read verse 9, it says, And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. Israel. So history never really leaves us in doubt about the identity of this wicked king. Because as already mentioned, he's Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who was, uh, as I said, given that name, Antiochus Epimanes, the madman. He was the tyrant oppressor of the Jewish people. Now, what would that be then? That that would be a, a forerunner again. A forerunner to a lot of people who were anti-Semitic, who were uh, rabidly anti-Semitic, rabidly wanting to get rid of the Jews, rabidly wanting to just take them all out. Kind of like a man named Haman in the book of Esther. And many others, uh, until you get to the 20th century, and you find a man named Adolf Hitler, or Adolf Hitler, who was very much in the same category of hatred toward the Jews, not just to kill a few, but to kill them all, to rid the world of what we know to be God's chosen people. 
You can argue why God wants to call them His own people. But I wouldn't argue much with Him because you know what He told the Jews themselves? He says, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest or the most in number. I chose you because I loved you. So, how do they return that love? In many cases, they followed Him in fear, but they didn't follow Him in respect. And time and time again, the Jewish people had to learn lessons. God was going to get them in the right track as He will still in the future. But nonetheless, that is very significant that this one person, this little horn out of this dynasty, is going to head toward the pleasant, the pleasant land. His wicked deeds of oppression, his wicked deeds of blasphemy and sacrilege are completely described in the apocryphal book called the book of Maccabees. Now, we don't have the Apocrypha, which is a series of books that were extra-biblical. In other words, uh, when we finally came to establish a canon of Scripture, where there was uh, 39 books uh, in the New Testament, I mean, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, 39 books, stops there. In the New Testament, 27 books, stops there. Uh, that's 66 books in total. All 66 work together uh, as one book. But there were other writings that were written in Hebrew in the times uh, shortly after, most of them shortly after uh, the uh, prophets or the time of the prophets. As one of the books was historical, which is the book of Maccabees, from which we get the story about Antiochus Epiphanes, and about Hanukkah. And we'll talk about Hanukkah in just a moment. But the, the point is that these extra-biblical books are not considered uh, 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 as canon. They're, they're not considered as inspired by God, as God breathed. But they are still gathered together in a book called the Apocrypha. Now, in the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church actually holds all of these books in their Bible. Uh, so if you happen to have had a Catholic Bible and still have it, you can actually read the book of Maccabees if you want. It's interesting that the, uh, the translators for the King James Bible back in 1611, actually it was before that, in the late 1590s and then uh, uh, 1611, which when, when, when it was uh, 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 authorized, uh, they also translated the, the apocryphal books, but they didn't put them into the canon of Scripture because they weren't considered to be inspired by God. Useful sometimes, but uh, the Catholic Church considers them inspired, but uh, the, the Jews do not, and uh, the, um, uh, the evangelical church does not either. Anyway, the book of Maccabees is, in, is there, and it is historical, and it is accurate. So long before he appeared, long before this Antiochus Epiphanes appeared, the prophet Daniel was given the vision to see him and to see his wicked work. Now he was, this is how we know he's from the Seleucid Empire, he was the eighth king of the Seleucid Empire to the north. He came to power, and by the way, you know, just you're going back to the map, the, Seleuc- the, the Seleucus dynasty was actually north, uh, you know, when you talk about north of Israel, 
It's, it's pretty much north of Israel. That's, that's, uh, but so is a little bit of Lysimachus' uh, uh, empire as well. But nonetheless, that's, that's important whenever it says the, na- the, you know, the country to the north or the nation or the kingdom to the north. Uh, again, we'll talk about that when we get to other chapters. Antiochus came to power in 175 B.C. by murdering his nephew and ending uh, his own life in 164 B.C. So he actually ruled for about 11 years. But during those years, he grew strong and he invaded Egypt to the south. That's why there was that little spot where they, they fought. By the way, where was that? Right there in what some people call Palestine, but it isn't Palestine. It's, it's Israel, what it, where Israel is today. So he invaded Egypt to the south, he invaded Parthia and Armenia to his west and east, and he invaded the glorious, pleasant land called Israel and Jerusalem, as we shall see. Now, history records that in 168 B.C., Antiochus returned to Alexandria in Egypt. By the way, Alexandria in Egypt was named after Alexander the Great. But he was turned away by the Roman commander Popilius Laenus. Now, Rome is starting to grow themselves as a nation. Rome has had some uh, contact with the Ptolemies that ruled in uh, in Egypt. I, I, I think you can you can say that uh, those who were of that dynasty were connected to uh, one Cleopatra, as it were, and then of course you know. You can tie, make all the tie-ins between the Egyptians and the Ptolemies, as it were. But uh, that's why Rome is kind of mentioned now in 168 B.C. They haven't conquered everything yet, but they're getting ready to. Frustrated and humiliated by this defeat, Antiochus returns northward and he goes home and he vents all his frustrations where? In Israel. And in particular, in Jerusalem. He sent his general... Apollonius with 20,000 troops and invaded Jerusalem on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath. Calculated. Not just a, a happenstance. Calculated. We invade on the Sabbath. Why? Because on the Sabbath the families are home. They're together. They're worshiping God. Sound familiar? To those of you who know the history of the 1973 Yom Kippur War. This is what uh, the Syrians and the Egyptians plotted to uh, take back their lands that, Egypt, that uh, Israel had, had uh, that won back in 1967. And so on the, the holiest day of the year, they attack Israel from the north and from the south. And they destroyed a lot of equipment. They, they killed a lot of people before they were able to scramble. And somewhere down the line, the United States, whose president, Richard Nixon at the time, uh, was made aware of the situation. And he remembered his mother saying to him when he was a young boy growing up reading the Bible, she would tell him, if you ever get into a position where you are there to help Israel, you help Israel. Because God will bless those who bless them, and he curses those who curses them, who curse them. And here he found himself 
realizing that now he was put on that place, if anything, sure, he made a lot of mistakes in his presidency. But this one thing he did, he sent aid to Israel. And that was very, very helpful in bringing them back to saving their their nation and, and, and their people from this, this attack. It's a long story. I, I could mention Henry Kissinger, who's a Jew, by the way, and, and he opposed it, but uh, Nixon convinced him that it had to be done. Anyway, so that, 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 that again, see, the, all of these things play into what's taking place in the world today because of Israel being at the very center of prophecy and at the very center of what's going on in the world today. Now consider verse 10, because it says, And it waxed great, even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Now this verse has been called by some one of the toughest verses to understand and to explain. But it isn't that difficult if you're aware of some symbolic language and phrases that are used in Hebrew. For example, the phrase, host of heaven is a poetical description of God's chosen people. It is a poetic description of God's chosen people. Secondly, the stars that are mentioned. And it cast down some of the host of the, and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Well, the stars are prominent individuals among them, in this case, those who held positions of authority and responsibility among the Jewish people, such as princes, as priests, and rabbis. So what did they do when they came into Jerusalem? What did Antiochus do when he came, he came into Jerusalem? Well, he, he went straight to the religious leaders and began to kill them. In fact, he killed many of them. Simply because they were Jewish. Simply because they were the religious leaders of the people at that time. And this passage, along with verse 11, as we'll see in just a moment, shows us this person as a type of the Antichrist. And we'll get to that in a moment. But, but turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14. And the reason I want you to see this particular passage, you, know, you all know it. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Well, let's read it. Because I want, I want you to see the very same attitude of mind and heart is in Antiochus Epiphanes as it was in Lucifer, the son of the morning. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations... For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. The very same attitude, the very same word. And by the way, this really uh, reveals an eye problem, doesn't it? I, 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 I. In fact, five eyes. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I 
will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I will be better than God. In fact, I will take God's place. That's the prince of this world. That's the very same attitude as Satan, the serpent of the garden of chapter 3 of Genesis. Who said, who said of God in Genesis chapter 3, did God really say the things that he said to you, Eve? Did he really say it? Calling God a liar? Putting doubt in the minds of men? Just as he did to Eve and Adam? And then taking the position of, of authority and saying, listen, Go ahead and eat from that tree. Because when you eat of it, you'll be just like God. And they disobeyed God. And they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And on that, on that day, God had told them, if you eat of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will begin to die. You will die spiritually immediately. You will die eventually physically. Had they stayed faithful to God, they would have lived on. Do you see how love is tested? Love is tested in many ways. But pride is what kills love. This kind of pride Satan had, Antichrist will have, Antiochus had the same pride. Now if you turn to Revelation chapter 12 verse 4, speaking of this dragon, it says, His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, the stars of heaven in this particular case being the angels. A third of the angels came down with, with Lucifer and did cast them to the earth and dragon and the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered. The woman being Israel was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. What child? Christ. They didn't want Israel because the Messiah was coming. How many times through the Old Testament do we find that they tried to get rid of the line of David that would lead eventually to Jesus? But now that Jesus is here, what did Alexander do with Persia? Because Persia did something bad to them, he came with a tremendous amount of force, triple probably what Persia had done to them. In a sense, this is the same kind of attitude that the enemy has against Christianity today as long, and, 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 uh, and uh, Judaism today as well. And look at the means by which he is trying to attack and kill them. But yet we have leaders today who tell us, well, listen, we can't really classify that. I mean, Christians do bad things too, you know. 
Really? We're all sinners, aren't we? As Christians, we've recognized the fact that we are sinners, but we are sinners who have been saved by the grace of Almighty God through the blood of Jesus Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. We have the promise of eternal life. Now we're to live like Jesus, and we don't behead anyone. In the name of a God, which is a demon, by the way. We try to bring people to eternal life in Jesus Christ. The world has blinded a lot of people. So the point of using these passages in Isaiah and Revelation is to ascend, you have to, you have to cast down. If you want to ascend, you have to cast down. It's kind of the same way in, in business and in, 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 in life, right? I mean, you know, the dog-eat-dog world, you've got to climb over people's backs to get someplace. It doesn't matter what you do to hurt them as long as you get to where you're going. That's the way of the world. That's not the way of the, of the Lord. That's not the way of Christ. So to ascend, you have to cast down, and that is just what he did. Cast down the host of heaven, as it were. The people of God. And notice what he goes on to do in verses 11 and 12 of Daniel chapter 8. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, which means he magnified himself against the prince of the host. Who's the prince of the host? That is Messiah. That is Jesus Christ. He magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him... The daily sacrifice was taken away. In other words, by this Antiochus, by this little horn, he has taken away the daily sacrifice in the temple. And then it says, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Verse 12, and a host was given unto him, which means an army actually was given unto him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. And it cast down the truth to the ground, the very truth that is given in the Word of God and in the law of God, and in particular the Torah, the law of God, as we'll see in a moment. And it practiced and prospered. In other words, it, 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 it did what it was going to do, and it prospered in what it did in bringing the religion, as it were, of the people to the ground. It was in that t- period of time that Antiochus entered into the sanctuary. This is recorded in history. Antiochus enters into the sanctuary in Jerusalem and he desecrated the temple by slaughtering a pig on the altar and in the inner court. And then he poured swine broth over all of the holy vessels in the temple, knowing that it was a desecration. To laugh in the very face of the Jewish priests and rabbis and princes. He prohibited the Jews from following the Mosaic law, observing the Sabbath. He prohibited them from observing the Sabbath, from observing the feasts, and even prohibited them from circumcising their sons according to the law. If you do any of these things, you will die.
Sound familiar? Sounds like we could have read this a few weeks ago in the newspaper. In fact, even this week, the story of a of a Christian boy, 14 or 15 years old, I can't remember, living in Pakistan, when two other young men who were Muslim, on their way on a Friday, on their way to, to their prayer time, happened upon this boy who was a Christian. They said, what, what is your belief? What is your faith? And he said he was Christian. And they beat him up. Savagely. They were on their way to pray. Isn't that something? More and more of the freedoms that we have in our country are being taken away to worship the Lord in the freedom that we've had for over 250 years. Every day. Some other thing has to... Well, look at you Christians. You have no tolerance whatsoever for other people. You have no love. We were even told that by our own president. We don't have any love. Well, love has to begin with Him. Love has to begin with the Lord. Love has to begin with saying, we love you, Lord, and if this is the word that you have given, this is what we are to follow. The world doesn't see it that way. That is why the world will be judged. And the believers, though going through the persecution of all of this, God said, he, God said this would happen. The Lord Jesus said it would happen. The apostles said it would happen. We would all suffer for our faith. But that's okay, because we know what the end is going to be for us. It's going to be a good end. It'll be an end that never ends. We'll be with Him forever. But we have to understand why we're going through these things. Antiochus set up an image of Zeus... The Greek, the main Greek God, in the holy place in the temple, he set up a, a statue of Zeus. And to the Jews, this was known as the abomination of desolation. Now here's something else. Now you, you have to take hold of this. Again, this was historic. This comes out of history. Antiochus corrupted the youths of Jerusalem by introducing lewd practices. The practices of, of the Grecian culture were now brought to Jerusalem. And they were the, introducing that to the young people. The Feast of Tabernacles, he changed into the Feast of Bacchus. What is Bacchus? That was a, one of those gods, that the, the god of, 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 of entertainment, the god of, of uh, you know, of, I guess the best, thing is, the best thing to understand is the god of partying, you know. Party hardy until you die kind of thing. And then he auctioned off the high priesthood. So whoever wanted to be high priest, it wasn't supposed to be a Jew anymore. Now it was supposed to be whoever wanted to be the high priest. He auctioned it off. Now consider this. Any Jewish person possessing a copy of the law of Moses was slain. 
Well, folks, that was the last straw, as it were, for a courageous band of rebels that were led by a a devoted believer in God. His name was Judas Maccabeus, of which the book of Maccabees was named after. It was on December the 14th, 165 B.C., that the temple was purified, the altar of burnt offering was restored, and Jewish worship as a whole was once again restored because they rebelled against Antiochus and his people. And they got back into the temple. And it was there, it was this event that the Jewish people to this day celebrate as the Feast of Lights what we call Hanukkah. By the way, Hanukkah means dedication. It was the dedication of the temple once again to God because it had been desecrated by Antiochus. By the way, even though Hanukkah is not one of the main feasts, it still is celebrated around the same time as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. But in John 10, verse 22, it's actually mentioned. We're told there in John 10, 22, it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication, and it was winter. So we know that it's, it's Hanukkah. Because it was in December. And still is. And we'll, we don't have time to go through the whole thing about the lighting of the, of the menorah and, and, and the oil. They only had so much oil. It was the miracle that uh, brought them to see that it was God that was helping them through this. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk about that maybe next week. But we've got to finish up with Antiochus because I only have a few minutes. Antiochus would later die in Persia in 163 B.C. But knowing these things will help us to better understand the prophecy of Daniel. Antiochus started small, but he gradually accumulated power to eventually magnify himself and deal ruthlessly with his enemies, but especially the Jews. So let's look for a moment at the abomination of desolation. Something that is found in three other passages in Daniel. So let's look at those three. One is very significant because we're going to spend a lot of time in this chapter. Daniel 9, verses 20, uh, verse 27. It's one verse, it's a long one. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, that's a seven year period by the way, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate that's that's actually the you know the abomination of desolation that's going to happen at the end time that's the prophecy daniel 11:31 mentions the abomination it says and arms shall stand on his part and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily sacrifice and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate what we're going to learn when we get to Daniel 11 is that this isn't the same message or mention as with Antiochus this is again something that's yet to happen Thirdly, Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, it says, From the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days, three and a half years. So, again, we'll we'll get to that when we, we come to study those chapters. But Jesus used that term, by the way, the abomination of desolation, in Matthew 24, verse 15, when you therefore... Now, what is he speaking of? The time of the coming of Christ. 
He says, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. By the way, I just want to make this very clear. You see this little mention here? That's not a smiley face. I just want you to know that that's part of the text, you know, it's part of the, the uh, punctuation of the text. You know, because nowadays we put that on all of our texts, you know, smiley face or whatever. Okay, that's not there. Somebody is probably out there saying, wow, look, a smiley face. But it's not, it's not. All right, Mark 13, verse 14. But when you shall see the de- abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand, then let them be in Judea, flee to the mountains. We'll find out that this is not speaking primarily of the invasion of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. by Titus the Roman, okay? But we'll get to that when we get to that, okay? Antiochus was a foreshadowing or a forerunner of Antichrist in this respect. Antichrist will put his image in the temple and command the people to worship him. Where did we get that? 2 Thessalonians. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, that's the Antichrist or the beast, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, just like Antiochus and just as uh, uh, Antichrist will do, or that is worshipped, so that he is God, or he as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is also saying, listen, this is going to be yet to come and to happen. What is interesting, listen to this, what is interesting is the description of Antichrist, or the beast, in Revelation chapter 13. Look there, if you will, and the underlined words that we find here in this text. I know that I've referenced them already, but now much more because of Antiochus. Look at what it says. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. Now the beast is the Antichrist. The beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. Do you notice something here? Where did this come from? It came from the vision given to Daniel in chapter 7. Pointing out the leopard, which was Medo-Persia. I'm sorry. The leopard, which is Greece. The bear, which is Medo-Persia. And the lion, which was Babylon. But there's no mention here of the unknowable beast that is to become Rome. So keep that in mind in your understanding of the prophecy here. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed. We're going to see something to the effect when we study Revelation, we're talking about the Antichrist and the false prophet and, you know, a a so-called healing take place. So people would say, wow, look, he had power to raise the dead. And all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? That's what they said about Antiochus. 
And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months, three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. In light of verse 2 of Revelation 13, just keep in mind the question, where is the beast from? Because we're going to find some interesting things about that as we press on into Daniel, the last half of Daniel. We're going to stop here for this evening and pick up in verses 13 and 14 next time. But referring to Hanukkah, and I'm not going to talk about it because of time, but I'll try to bring it up a little bit next week. Let's close with this statement of Jesus because Hanukkah was called the, the festival, or it's called the Feast of Lights. Hanukkah is the Feast of Dedication. But this is what Jesus said of himself. Notice in John 8, 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. We can have all kinds of feasts that point us with lights and all. Lights is okay. You know, it reminds us that we need to be in light, not in darkness. But Jesus made it very clear. When it comes right down to it, there's only one true light. And He is the light that is the life of men. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness. You follow me, the light will always be with you. The light will always be with you. Stay in the light of Christ in your life today, tomorrow, the rest of this week, the rest of this month, the rest of this year, until the day that Jesus Christ comes again. Stay in his light. Because we're dealing with a lot of darkness here. We're dealing with a lot of darkness that's going on in this world today. We're dealing with a lot of darkness that's going to even, it's going to get even darker. You think it's dark now? It's going to get even darker. But praise God, Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is alive. Jesus is ruling and reigning. Jesus is in control. He knows what's going on. I had a thought this afternoon. I know I'm, I'm ask, Give me one more minute. I got this thought. I had this thought. You know, God does not sit on His throne biting His nails. We might, but He doesn't. He's seen the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning already. The victory's already ours. The victory already belongs to every believer in Jesus Christ. We just don't go around puffing and puffing like, you know. Why? Because God called us to be humble. And to just live humbly our lives and give presentation of the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the way we're supposed to live. No matter what anybody will say. No matter how many times people may hate you because you're a believer, when times get rough for them, guess who they come to? They'll come to you. And you know that they hate you, but you say, you know what? They hated Jesus too. And yet they came to Him. Let them come to you. And if they hate you, it's okay. You have to love them. Because you have the love of Christ in you. 
All right, not another sermon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. and We bless you for this time. We thank you for your word. And we do ask that you would help us in coming to full understanding of, of all of these things as we see the day of Christ approaching rapidly. And we ought not to take those things for granted, Lord. It, it is truly things that, that, we, that we need to get right and deal with uh, before we leave even this place today. Help us to, to do what is right. Strengthen us, Lord God, to do everything that honors you and blesses you. Because we want to be a light. We don't want to be a, you know, a tarnished uh, vessel. We want to be a bright vessel. We already know that we're earthen vessels, Lord God. We're made, you know, we're made of this earth, but, but your light has to shine in us. So we make ourselves available to you to do everything that you need to do in us so that we can give honor and glory to you and bring others to you. I pray, Father, for that outreach is coming up in, on, on the 25th. And I, I ask you, Lord, bless all those that are going to be involved in reaching out with the gospel at, uh, at that flea market, Lord. And even now, Father, bring many, and even before then, bring many, Lord, to your, to your truth and to your Son. Thank you for this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.